You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian Geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, joined as usual by my colleague of The Diplomat, Prashant Parmeswaran. Thanks for joining me, Prashant. How are you doing this evening? Good, how are you? Doing well, Prashant, and I'm really looking forward to this podcast since I've been uh, teasing it on the past few episodes. We're finally going to revisit the Philippines, whose new president, Rodrigo Duterte, has stirred up quite a few headlines in the recent weeks. Um, Indeed, we did a podcast on Duterte about a month ago, but I think we jumped the gun a bit. Uh, Some listeners, uh, especially regular subscribers, might recall that we discussed Duterte's um, remarkable insult against U.S. President Barack Obama before the ASEAN summit in Vientiane. Unfortunately, we jumped the gun. Uh, Since then, there's been quite a lot going on uh, with the Philippines, especially, that has um, called on, you know, has made some commentators think that we're witnessing something like a tectonic shift in the geopolitics of the Asia Pacific. Since this is a podcast on the geopolitics, it seems like uh, an appropriate topic to take on. So, um, Prashant, I'll turn it over to you in a second, uh, since you actually wrote a very in-depth and sober article looking at Duterte and what his... um, foreign policy actually implies about where the Philippines sits between the United States and China. But first, I want to talk about Richard Nixon. And uh, that's not entirely a non sequitur. I've actually been thinking a lot about a Nixonian uh, strain of thinking in foreign policy, specifically Nixon's madman theory, when I watch Duterte's messaging and rhetoric in various uh, places across the Asia Pacific. Um, It's been interesting to see what he says at home in the Philippines, what he says when he's in China. And particularly as we record this, uh, Duterte is about to meet with Prime Minister Shinzo Abe in Japan, and he's made some interesting remarks there. But essentially, uh, Nixon, U.S. president from 69 to 74, when he uh, resigned in disgrace after the Watergate scandal, pioneered what he called the madman theory of foreign policy. Basically, Nixon thought that if he made foreign leaders, um, including you know the Soviet Union, but also friends and allies alike, uh, think that he was volatile and unpredictable. He could position himself in a powerful negotiating position, essentially having them in the palm of his hand. Uh, ultimately, the madman theory didn't really work out for Nixon, but uh, it was evoked. I think uh, Kissinger evoked it when the United States entered Cambodia, uh, but it essentially sort of faded as a Vietnam War went on. Um, but I think, you know, Duterte might have carried that on in spirit in some ways. Um, so you wrote a bit about this, Prashant. Uh, that was just a little bit of a, a riff on some of the things I've been thinking about watching the Philippine president. So, you know, let's start with his visit to China. That's gotten a lot of attention in the press. Essentially, Duterte arrived in China, delivered a rousing speech which in which he ramped up his anti-Americanism essentially to 11, and he said that he was announcing a separation from the United States. He later recalled that, said that didn't mean a severance in ties. But really, Prashant, what's going on here? What are we to make of Duterte's recent visit to China? Yeah, so I think you're, you're absolutely right uh, in how you framed it, in the sense that there's been a lot of sensationalist commentary coming out uh, after the visit. Um, so I was in uh, Beijing a week before uh, Duterte went there for, for the Ziangshan Forum, um, which is their track 1.5 uh, defense dialogue. Um, and uh, even then, uh, there were some very seasoned observers um, of the Philippines uh, in China who were cautioning against uh, trying to read too much into the significance uh, of his visit, in spite of the fact that there were several deliverables that were planned, there was a very cautious approach that the Chinese were going to take towards him, because precisely because, as you pointed out, they know that even though he has said that he's going to reverse what the Philippines has had in terms of its policy the last administration, which is moving appreciably closer to the United States and, and away from China, 
despite the fact that he's seeking to reverse that, it's still far too early to see what exactly that means. Um, and even his advisors uh, have been bending over backwards to warn that when he says something, you should not take it at face value. <laughs> right. You should you you should wait to see if there are any things that are being implemented. You should wait to see if the bureaucracies confirm or deny what he's saying. Um, and you should wait if he's talking about other countries to see what the other countries are saying in response to to what he's saying. So I think there's a lot of caution all around uh, from his advisors, from the international community, um, and and even from those close to him. I think his spokesperson, I mentioned in the piece as well, came out and said, uh, you know, exercise your own creative uh, interpretation when it comes to what Duterte says, because it, it's anyone's guess what he actually means. Right. So one of the things I've really liked in your writing about Duterte is that you take the long view of Philippines politics and Philippines leaders, and you point out that even though the Aquino administration, since the Scarborough Shoal standoff in 2012, was decisively pro-American and pursued a policy regionally that was very favorable to American interests, that hasn't always been the case in the Philippines. Um, you know, and even with Aquino, I mean, um, I, you know, I think I actually recall that if you recall um, when the Nobel Committee awarded Liu Xiaobo the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, the Aquino administration actually, uh, to avoid upsetting China's sensitivities, uh, didn't, uh, you know, stand up for that and didn't actually attend the ceremony. So, you know, it, it wasn't always the case in the Philippines that, you know, we've had extremely pro-American governments like the Aquino administration since 2012. So can you talk a bit about the history there, uh, just so some of our listeners who might not be as familiar with Philippines politics as you are sort of have the broader picture of where this country's foreign policy is coming from? Sure. I mean, so I think the, 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 the important part with the Philippines is to understand sort of the baseline. So the baseline is, I mean, this is a country that has a long-standing alliance with the United States, and that's sort of been uh, consistent throughout, even though the alliance and the pace of the security cooperation has kind of ebbed and flowed over time. Um, the relationship with China, um, there's been waves of sort of um, uh, problems followed by periods of rapprochement. So under uh, in the 1990s, there was a period of uh, South China Sea assertiveness by China before this wave, um, where you saw China take a mischief brief. Um, and then you had a succession of presidents, including uh, Fidel Ramos and uh, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, who sought to, who sought to then uh, sort of engage uh, China more, even while they were pursuing better relations uh, with the United States. And I think that's where Aquino uh, comes in, because as you correctly pointed out, um, it's not like Aquino came in and immediately said he was going to be anti-Chinese. Um, there were a succession of events uh, in the South China Sea, and that's why Aquino eventually took a harder line um, in terms of China, and that's why they filed the case. And in fact, I mentioned the piece as well, there were efforts laid on the in the Aquino administration to try to fix the relationship with China. Unfortunately, the, the fact that the Philippines filed a South China Sea case against China was seen by Beijing as, as being something that was very provocative. So that didn't really get anywhere eventually. So in many ways, the, the Chinese, in fact, some Chinese commentators, even before uh, Duterte came to power, were already saying, oh, this is great. We have a new administration. And irrespective of who the new president is, we're going to have somebody who we can work with more so than the Aquino administration. I think they just didn't see the extent to which uh, this was possible. I, I don't think anyone could have predicted uh, how this was. And But going back to your, your earlier point about what the trip actually achieved, I think it's 
it's really important uh, for listeners to note there's been a lot made of these uh, agreements that were signed, you know, 13 agreements, uh, billions of dollars signed. It's really important to look at the specific agreements. I mean, most of them are memorandums of understanding. We don't have full disclosure as to what these agreements contain. The Philippine Senate, as I, as I mentioned in, in, in the piece, is actually planning on opening an inquiry, they say, to figure out what exactly is in these agreements because no one has any idea. Um, and if you look at some of the, the press reports coming out recently, um, the Philippine police recently disclosed that they came back with boxes of equipment that they got from the Chinese to assist, to assist with law enforcement cooperation. And no one knows exactly what the content of these boxes are. And so if we, we don't know the extent to which uh, the cooperation is already ongoing. And so it, it'll be really important to see exactly what the specifics are um, in these agreements. And also, more generally, you know, whenever you see anything signed by this administration, I think it's going to be really important to look at the details. Absolutely. Um, just on one of the details, I thought it was interesting. Uh, the optics here are particularly bad is that um, one of the agreements involves uh, CCCC dredging, uh, one of the companies that was involved in uh, yeah. helping China dredge up its um seven artificial islands in the Spratlys doing some work in uh, Davao and Manila in the Philippines. So that's not great optics right there and uh, might have some public opinion blowback. Um, but, you know, I wanted yeah, to... Too, yeah, go ahead. You know? <laughs> Sorry? And it's reclamation, too. Yeah, exactly. Land reclamation, which is exactly what we've seen in the yeah. Spratly Islands. So um, that is, you know, not the best optics, like I said. Um, you know, I think it's interesting if you look at what China is doing. I mean, it, it's very interesting if you read the foreign ministry statements from the Chinese side. And I should note that after Duterte met Xi, the Chinese side immediately came out with, uh, you know, very long and detailed messaging about what was discussed and what might be possible in the future. But it was very important to note that there weren't really commitments. It was, you know, China is uh, happy to support the drug war in the Philippines, would do this, might do this. It was, you know, a lot of carrots, essentially. China, I think you're absolutely right that China knows that Duterte is is this sort of um, madman, you know, if I go back to that analogy, essentially, and he's, uh, you know, his messaging has been contradictory, and it has primarily been directed against the United States, but it might flip on China, and China might have to deal with Duterte's unpredictable behavior and language. So Beijing is being very careful, not making any real commitments at this point, but essentially, you know, extending an arm and saying, look, if you keep on behaving this way, we might be able to accomplish these things together in the future. And I think we've also seen that in how the issue of Scarborough Shoal and the South China Sea issue have been approached as well during his visit. Um, but it's really, I think, um, I mean, you're absolutely right that we have seen these agreements. We don't know what's in them, but China is essentially keeping the potential there in the future to return to cooperation. Yeah. Um, so, you know, let's talk a bit about Duterte as a personality. I mean, it really seems like, Prashant, if there's something we can observe about Duterte, maybe for sure, I mean, he is a very unpredictable figure, but it really seems like, you know, deep down under his skin, he is anti-American. Um, he has you know, um, talked about his mistrust of the United States and through a variety of ways, everything from talking about colonial area atrocities in the Philippines to even commenting on how he didn't like the way the U.S. visa officer looked at him once when he wanted a U.S. visa to go visit his girlfriend. Yeah. So really, I mean, this varies between the historical, the personal, but really it seems like it's something that's really embedded within. Um, and what's interesting is that the United States, I thought, you know, for the first four months, they really had no idea how to deal with this. I mean, you had State Department spokespeople essentially shrugging their shoulders, expressing bafflement. But in the past, Last week, we've seen, you know, Assistant Secretary for uh, East Asian Pacific Affairs, Danny Russell, express concern in Manila about uh, about Duterte's behavior. Earlier today in New York, Director of National Intelligence James Clapper described Duterte's behavior as bothersome. So how do you see Washington, you know, 
having to deal with Duterte. How do you think the United States is going to manage this? Yeah, I, I think there, uh, you're, you're right in, in the sense that uh, initially there were some folks who thought this was uh, kind of going to be uh, just the president saying things but not really following up on anything. Uh, and that perhaps after a few of his comments, if they didn't uh, respond, uh, it would just kind of go away. Uh, but it's now clear that uh, he's very determined uh, to continue on this path. And it's not even clear how whether this is going to have any actual implications in terms of the, the working level, right? So uh, one of the interesting things, um, and I mentioned this in the piece as well, um, is the, uh, the, the Philippines uh, defense secretary uh, was asked recently uh, during his confirmation hearing whether uh, the Duterte administration would actually move forward with any of these things. You know, there have been all these statements about ending bilateral exercises, uh, ending the, the so-called Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement that was signed in 2014, even revising the Mutual Defense Treaty. Um, and he essentially said, uh, no, all of those things are running as scheduled, even though Duterte has said that uh, he may change those things. But he also said, interestingly, that Duterte has asked him to present findings on all the aspects of U.S.-Philippine security cooperation during an upcoming cabinet meeting uh, next month, and that all the members of the cabinet, including uh, Lorenzana himself, the defense secretary, would be pitching in and, and giving an inputs, and then Duterte will decide what he's going to do. So essentially, I mean, there it has evolved to a situation where there could potentially be some actual uh, changes in the way that U.S.-Philippine security cooperation actually works. Now, the, 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 the issue is, and maybe the saving grace of the United States is, and other countries is, so far, Duterte hasn't demonstrated a great amount of knowledge about the U.S.-Philippine relationship in terms of its specifics, right? So that's a negative in the sense that he doesn't appreciate what the United States is doing for the Philippines, but it's also it maybe a good thing in the sense that he doesn't know for example, even how many exercises there are, right? So I, I spoke to one defense official who said Duterte is under this illusion that there's only like, you know, a, a few key exercises that the, uh, the U.S. and the Philippines do, when in fact there's 28 separate exercises. So when he talks about canceling exercises, I don't think he knows the, the depth and the range of cooperation. So he may not get down to actually doing as much as he is saying that he does just because he doesn't know as much uh, about the actual uh, U.S.-Philippine security cooperation that exists. So that may be a saving grace. Now, the problem is, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, he is fiercely anti-American. This is something that it's not just policy. It's not just what, uh, you know, it has to do with the, the war on drugs that, that some, have, some people have been reporting about. Obviously, that's part of it. But, you know, he has, it, it's this, you know, sort of leftist orientation that he has, its grievances about the, the U.S. colonial legacy in the Philippines, um, it it's really is um, embedded uh, in, in his thinking. So mm -hmm. it remains to be seen, you know, how it, all of this is going to play out because you can see him being practical. But, you know, going back to what you said earlier about the, the sort of madman theory, right? Um, some people have been speculating that, you know, perhaps Duterte is just doing this just to extract more cooperation out of the United States and extract more cooperation out of Japan, China, and in fact, he's actually being really smart. Now, you know, my own reading from what I've heard from uh, the, his advisors, his officials, and, and my own reading is that 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 
I don't think that's true. I think he's just a simple guy who doesn't know a lot about foreign policy. He knows a lot about domestic policy. He knows a lot about governing because he, he was uh, a mayor for over two decades. But he has no idea about U.S.-China relations. He has no idea about conflict, about war. Um, he right. has no idea about these exercises yeah, <laughs> that I think, the Philippines have. Yeah, so, I know. think you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. so, you know, one of the things, uh, and look, I don't want to oversell this madman thing. I don't think it actually explains it, but I, you know, just looking at Duterte, it's something that I was thinking about. Um, but, you know, you're absolutely right. Actually, before I forget, I really want to bring this up on the podcast as a point that illustrates exactly this. I mean, if you look at what Duterte has been saying about the South China Sea, which I watch closely because, you know, I've been following the South China Sea disputes for a while. You know, he's essentially proposed everything from, you know, talking to China about joint fishing around Scarborough Shoal. But at the same time, you know, he's gone on right before his Japan trip, suggesting that he wants Japan to be part of multilateral talks with China to resolve yeah. the South China Sea disputes, which is just absolutely, I mean, you know, if you if you understand the South China Sea disputes, you understand why that would be absolutely inimical and offensive to the Chinese, right? So, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that he really, uh, you know, in, a, in this sense, you know, he's, he's far less of an internationalist than Aquino might have been. He's, if not disinterested, then he's just maybe just not interested in the details of these foreign issues. He really thinks that, you know, he could say one thing one day, say the opposite the other day, and diplomatically it won't really matter. Um, you know, audiences in these countries aren't really looking at him that closely, but he would be mistaken about that. I mean, uh, I, I think that assessment is right. Um, and, you know, I do want to, you know, shift a bit and talk about the domestic aspect of everything that's going on here because, uh, you know, I have a few questions for you actually on this regard. I mean, one of the things I think is really curious is the civil military dynamics here uh, with Duterte. I mean, um, I found it interesting, actually, uh, the Rappler reported that more so than any Philippines president in the post-Marcos era, Duterte in his first, I guess, 100 days has uh, addressed military audiences the most, uh, which I thought was very interesting, especially given his, you know, attempts to rebalance things quite a bit. And, you know, on one side, you know, there's the cynical read that he knows the value of the military and might be, you know, might eventually want to pivot to something like martial law and knows that he would need the military on his side. Uh, the other side is that he knows that if he is going to pursue his anti-American agenda, uh, you know, bureaucratic impulses within the Philippines military might resist that. Um, and, you know, a coup risk might actually rise in the Philippines. Um, I mean, obviously, both of those scenarios are quite far-fetched at the moment, but I wanted to get a sense of, you know, what you think about the civil military dynamics here with everything Duterte is trying to do. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's a it's a really important point. I mean, how he's been visiting all these military camps and delivering speeches to Schultz soldiers and, you know, not not just the, the speeches and the visits, but really how he spends time uh, talking to them individually, sometimes has uh, has food and drinks with them. Uh, they really get along with him. And then it's a, really a, a genuine relationship that that's being formed. Now, as to why he's doing it, um, it could be all of the above. It could be one or more of these factors. But one of the interesting things that you know he's he's on record as saying, you know, even before he ran for office, as saying that if you want to establish a strong government, the two pillars are going to be the police and the military, and that's what you have to get right. And he was asked about the role of Congress. He was asked about the rules, the the role of various institutions, and he said. Yeah, Congress, you know, they're going to make noise. I understand that they're going to have opposition. But as long as I have the military and the police on my side, I think I'll be able to govern this country. So I, definitely I think that that has a, a political bent to it. I mean, his his uh, his courting of uh, the military. Now, as for a coup, I mean, uh, obviously, given the Philippines' past history, one can uh, rule out the possibility um, of that happening. 
I think at least for now, his support is sufficiently high. I think where you might get into it is perhaps later into his term when he tries to uh, take on some of his more controversial measures. I mean, in the in the Philippines, usually you see the first year in office is when a president tries to find his feet both domestically and internationally. And that's when after that you'll see the opposition coming out in Congress and in various places. In Duterte's case, when it comes out, it might actually be a lot fiercer just because he's trying to change so much in the Philippines. I mean, he's talked about a federalist government. He's in the pro in the process of uh, conducting two peace processes, right, with the, the right. Muslim rebels and also the communists. And the communists in particular, that's a sore point for the military because a lot of these leading uh, military officials were involved in arresting these communists, right? So the fact that he's now asking for those uh, rebels to be freed um, is a really a, a point of pride uh, for them that he's sort of trampling on. So it'll be really interesting to see how that pans out uh, in the future. But definitely, you're right to point to the civil-military dynamic as, as being something to watch very closely in the Philippines moving forward. Yeah, uh, he might have taken a little bit of inspiration from Juan Manuel Santos and his recent Peace Prize, uh, although that didn't work out quite that well for Colombia. Um, you know, I mean, one final thing I'll note with the military is that I think there might be a a divide between the rank and file and the leadership. Uh, the leadership might be a lot more concerned with, you know, the equipment and the prestige associated with the U.S. alliance and might be particularly sensitive to that, but also on the point of the communist that you make, uh, which is very well taken. Um, Prashant, I want to pivot, uh, you know, as the final conversation on this podcast, I do want to talk a bit about public opinion, uh, which is something that we both wrote about recently. Uh, we got the third quarter data out of the Philippines uh, showing public opinion data, and um, it showed that Duterte's public support was still very uh, very strong in the country. The social Weather Station survey showed his net positive rating at 64, which is quite high for uh, any leader. Uh, but, you know, you uh, again, you wrote a very detailed piece about this. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of, you know, talk about some of the dynamics driving public opinion. Um, and obviously here again, it's instructive to take the long view of Philippines politics and look at previous administrations. So do you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, two things uh, that would be really important to stress. I think you're, you're absolutely right to say that, you know, his, his popularity is still sky high, um, even relative to some of the other presidents. Um, but what I mentioned in the piece is sort of two critical things. One is, even though his popularity is pretty high, it's not that much higher than where any of his predecessors were uh, at the very time that they did when they initially took office. So if you look at Aquino's rating when he came in, it was about... 71%, Duterte's at 76%. Uh, so it's it's sort of four or five points uh, ahead of some of his uh, predecessors. But more importantly, um, it's really important to distinguish between overall popularity and support for some of his specific policies. So the fact that Duterte enjoys sky-high popularity rating, I mean, the other social weather station uh, poll that came out just as he was going to China showed that uh, the United States had a plus 66 net uh, satisfaction or trust rating, uh, but China had a negative 33% mm -hmm. uh, trust rating. Um, and so you can have high support for a president uh, in general, uh, as in Filipinos wanting major change, um, but that doesn't mean that they support some of his more controversial sort of uh, foreign policies. And that, like I said, and you've mentioned too, might apply also to some of the various uh, bureaucracies who they've been so used to cooperating uh, with the United States on so many levels uh, over, over decades. So if you see a wild swing uh, away from that, 
Um, I, I can't see them uh, not reacting strongly if anything happens to the actual direction of the U.S.-Philippine relationship. Absolutely. Um, and here I actually want to plug um, one of the older podcast episodes uh, where I interviewed an American who had traveled with Filipino activists to the South China Sea to Scarborough Shoal. And I just want to raise that because, uh, you know, when you when you talk about the South China Sea issue in the Philippines, I think it's often left out of a lot of international coverage that it is a nationalist sore point in the country um, and certainly will, uh, you know, affect public opinion. Like, um, I mean, for, you know, Arroyo, for example, that was a big uh, pressure point with, uh, you know, essentially when she went uh, too close to China, which, again, you talk about in your piece, Prashant. Um, But, you know, I think the uh, I think, uh, you know, I guess if there's a bottom line to this podcast, it's that we'll have to essentially wait and see. I mean, you write that, you know, we are still early into Duterte's administration and a, a lot of these. Uh, you know, a lot of these elements that are still going in his favor, like public opinion, bureaucratic support might eventually begin to fray and politics might go a little bit more contentious. And uh, certainly we'll have to see, you know, how China decides to play its cards. It's laid out a bunch of carrots in front of Duterte, uh, but it still has its sticks. I mean, you know, as we speak, uh, Scarborough Shoal, the status quo still hasn't changed. I mean, Filipino fishermen still don't have access um, and that might change. It might not change. Um, there's a lot to watch for here, but um, hopefully this podcast... Yeah, go ahead. One, one thing to, to, to mention, uh, since he's... He's in Japan now. I thought I should, you know, mention that we we talked a lot about uh, China. We've talked about the United States. I think it's really important for for listeners and others to sort of keep in mind, you know, what we've been talking about um, offline as well, which is, you know, there's a lot more to Philippine foreign policy than just the United States and China. And I think, you know, Japan is a good reflection of that. Uh, we haven't seen what he's going to do with Australia. We haven't fully seen what he's going to do with South Korea. And so. The foreign policy of the Duterte administration, the so-called sort of independent foreign policy that they're talking about, moving away from the United States and diversifying with other players, we don't know how much of that is going to be China, how much of that is going to be Japan, Australia. So it's really important for us to pay attention to these other trips that he's making, uh, including Japan um, and, and some of the other countries. Russia, for example, um, is he going to have a, a high-level meeting with uh, the next U.S. president? And so I, I'm sure as we've had already two or three pieces, including by yourself on The Diplomat uh, on Japan, you know, we should w- be watching these other visits uh, very closely. And I know we're going to do that, but other folks should do that, too, and not just uh, keep the focus on U.S. and China. Right. Um, and that actually reminds me of one other point that I wanted to bring up, which is uh, something that you noted that I really liked. And I haven't really seen any other commentators note that about Duterte's foreign policy, which is that he really does have that kind of Asia for Asians bent. I mean, he, you know, his anti-Americanism again, he really doesn't see the United States as a Pacific power in some sense. I mean, he sees a role for Japan and South Korea. And, you know, I mean, it just so happens that Japan and South Korea, their foreign policies happen to mesh well with what the United States is trying to do in the region as well. So again, I mean, yeah, if Duterte does choose to, you know, eventually balance towards Japan and South Korea and Australia in the region, that might not be an entire loss for the United States, even if it doesn't have the same degree of cooperation with Manila that it did under the Aquino administration. Yeah, and that's going to be important when we sort of get to the uh, Philippines uh, ASEAN chairmanship, because there there's an opportunity to advance uh, regional economic integration and sort of if you're going for this East Asia, Asia for Asians agenda, and you have the chairmanship, that's an excellent opportunity to advance it in the economic front. Right. And uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that's also something to look forward to um, next year. So, yeah, we'll uh, definitely be back with Duterte. Um, I think he's one of those curveballs that caught a yeah. lot of close analysts of Asia um, off balance when he started polling highly in uh, April. Um, so um, he'll definitely you know, be on the scene for at least, uh, at least you know, potentially five and a half more years. So 
definitely something to keep your eye on. Um, so thanks for listening to the podcast as always, and uh, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And as always, please do leave us a rating and a review on iTunes if you like what you heard. Thanks for listening.